welcome to episode 19 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Andrew Spurs. And joining us is a very special guest. You might know her from her searing pop culture takes in Guardian Australia, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Saturday Paper, The Big Issue or Daily Life, her comedy festival shows, her fringe festival shows, her ringside Instagramming of Melbourne's wrestling matches, or from her award-winning jams. And I'm talking about the Peckton-based, not musical variety. It could only be Clem Bastow. What an amazing introduction. Clem, welcome to Cultural Capital. Nothing is ever going to compare to that. (laughs) Well, that's just scraping the surface of what you do as well. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Very glad you could join us. Um, So we'll be reviewing uh, the Oscar-nominated story of African-American women in NASA, Theodore Melfi's Hidden Figures. We'll give you our takes on the latest from Mubi, and as we'll be telling us about uh, an article he published recently that sparked a lot of online discussions about film and film criticism in Australia, and we'll look at our top three films about spirituality. But first, the film that's inspiring this list, Martin Scorsese's Silence. Our Lord said to them, Go ye into the whole world and preach the gospel to every living creature. Ferreira is lost to us. He denounced God in public and surrendered the faith. That's not possible. Father Ferreira risked his life to spread our faith all over Japan. It seems to me that our mission here is more urgent than ever. We must go find Father Ferreira. This is in your hearts, then, both of you? Yes. Then I must trust God has put it down. The moment you set foot in that country, you step into high danger. A new Martin Scorsese movie is always going to grab attention, so when he announced that his new film Silence was going to be a a two-and-a-half-hour epic about two Portuguese Jesuit priests travelling to Japan in the 1600s, People tended to think, well, this is a film Scorsese is making for himself rather than another flashy Wolf of Wall Street or crowd pleaser like Shutter Island. The film tells the story of two Portuguese priests, Rodriguez, played by Andrew Garfield, and Garupe, played by Adam Driver, who go to Japan to find out what happened to their spiritual leader, Father Ferreira, played by Liam Neeson, who is alleged to have committed apostasy and converted to Buddhism. Uh, this is incredibly dangerous as Christianity is banned in Japan and followers are regularly tortured and killed. Once in Japan, Rodriguez and Garupe see devout Christians dying for their faith in a very Jesus-like way, which forces them to question the spiritual and moral value of life and martyrdom. Throughout the week, I think each of us mentioned how we were struggling with this film. Clem, as of now, what do you make of Silence? I'm going to sound very dumb because I think I'm still processing it. And so people have asked me, what did you think of it? And I just kind of go, uh. (laughs) And I think, you know, I've been talking to a friend of mine who's a huge Scorsese fan, but he's very much an atheist. And I wonder whether being Catholic gives you a bit more to think about in this film. Not to sound like, well, you'll know when you have children, but I do think... (laughs) It's especially for, for those of us who are, you know, still Catholic in a sort of spiritual sense, I think this film has a lot to mull over. And it sort of feels, feels like one of those films that might take me a long time to, to figure out. But I loved it. You know, mm. the, the lack of anything to say is not because I thought it was terrible. It was quite the opposite. And from a filmic perspective, I've got lots to say, but about the themes, I'm still mm. really kind of mulling over them. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I found it really sort of dense with a lot to think about. Uh, in my review, I saw, I mean, I went into it a bit apprehensive about, oh, is this just going to be a film about three Europeans going to Japan and facing persecution? And, you know, you sort of, I sort of reflexively winced at every single part of the uh, plot synopsis that I read before it, but I was sort of blown away by it. I thought it was... It took me a while to get onto its level. So it starts... It, some of the dialogue I found quite... Uh, <laughs> 
on the nose. Like at one point, Andrew Garfield, who's sort of the main priest in this film, he says uh, in voiceover, he says, uh, we left for Japan with no baggage except our hearts. And I sort of cringed. But then I thought, well, this is the 1600s. It is. (laughs) And it says something very interesting about his character and about his his faith, which is really, I think, what this film's looking at, which is like, he's a man who's so absorbed in his own journey of faith that he's become quite sort of self-absorbed to the extent that people are sort of dying and are they dying because of his, because of his self-absorption? That's what I was thinking about for the film. This is one of many things mm. that I was thinking about for the film. So mm. What did you think, Andy? Well, for the most part, I struggled with the colonialist mentality that you, you mentioned earlier, which I think... In a way, you could kind of respect after a while because they were, they were clearly doing the thing that they thought was right. But I also really appreciated the way that it was very much set in a Buddhist world. So there was a lot of characters emerging from steam or from smoke or from fog. There was a lot of shots of water. Fire plays a really important part. Yeah. So it's all. it seems to be like very respectful straight, like as in filmmaking, which I guess he showed in Kundun as well when he was examining spirituality there. From Scorsese's perspective, he had a really beautiful way of not judging the characters and just letting them either dig their own holes or face their own problems in this sort of detached way. So Garfield's performance I struggled with for a while, but I also thought, um, in a way, he was you know incredibly in a, in a difficult situation, and then he was in various cages of his own either ideology or the way that he couldn't relate to the people there, and then he was in literal cages towards the end of the film. Um, and I thought that the depiction of the, the the world was really beautiful. Like, you know, there was the way that he paid violence was never glorified or messy. It was just kind of happened and then things moved on. Um, and I particularly love the portrayal of the inspector. Mm. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. What's his name? You say... Uh, it's a Ogata. That's the actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ogata. Yeah. Yes. Comedian. Japanese comedian. It was fantastic. Yeah, 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 just... yeah. He and I think in my review of this, I thought like he kind of really elevated his cat the point of view that his character encapsulated to like he was just so uh charismatic and i i just couldn't whenever he was on screen i was like really into him mm. and like when uh one of one of the characters says to andrew garfield's character he's, he goes um oh do you miss the inquisitor yet and i was thinking yes i do miss the inquisitor bring back <laughs> <laughs> it's a very funny film and i think that that's 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 an interesting yeah, kind interesting, of counterpoint to a lot of films about faith or christian films which are typically not funny at all except by accident. Yeah. The cinema that I was in when, when I saw Silence was a laugh a line for some of it. And I think mm. some of that was uh, people people's discomfort. Yeah. Mm. There were definitely mm. a few people, and a couple of walkouts actually in the session that I went to. That really struck me because, you know, Scorsese can go either way. He can be very... There weren't many laughs in Shutter Island. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was, in a way, quite old-fashioned like that. It felt like the old Scorsese mm. was back. Yeah, well, this is a thing. I, this is a thing he's explored before. Like, you know, in, um, in Kundun and in Italian-American, he looks at the... And even in Main Streets, you know, he looks at the way that religion is something that you kind of hold on to or you struggle with when you're trying to shape yourself in society, you know, to be able to get ahead or get by. And as you know, I suffered through a faith-based film last year in the cinema. Yes, we did. Risen. Yes. <gasps> the oh, Rise no. of all Risen. Did you see yeah. that too? No, I didn't, but I know of it. Oh, <laughs> man. I wrote so much about that. Yes, how do you think this film was different? Because they're essentially both putting their spirituality right out the front. Well, that film had Joseph Fine and Draco Malfoy, and that was a really didactic, bombastic kind of uh, mode of filmmaking, whereas this is a lot more... It is a, it's a slow. It's a slow film, which you know I I dug I was into into the tempo completely. It's a lot more it's a lot more interesting. I'd say that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem to promise. Has a longer so afterlife. Oh yeah, 
nice, nice use of afterlife. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it, is, it did strike me as quite unusual for a film of this magnitude. I mean, this had, what, a $50 million budget, I think, to be able to take religion so seriously and so mm. slowly and carefully and, and just you know, let this story kind of unfold. It's interesting. I think, like you were saying, Clem, there's, it depends a lot on what you bring to it. So, yeah. So, like in the Saturday paper, um, Christos Solskis, you know, described it as a staggeringly powerful film. Was I? Yeah. I just could not engage. But I, you know, I'm sure he has a very different. Well, he's sp- a good Catholic boy. Yeah, precisely. Like so I think that for somebody who is bringing more. Um, of that sort of background to the film, I think there's a, a, it's more rewarding, perhaps. Well, it's interesting watching it. I I had what I guess you would call a religious experience at a very young age when I was I think four or five, and at St Joseph's School we had to do our first confession, which I thought was ridiculous, and I just sat in the confession booth, sort of just kicking my legs against the seat until I went, wait a minute. Jesus doesn't care, you know, like if I'm not a murderer, I'm pretty sure we're, we're tight. And I just went, I think I said to the priest, oh, I said bum this week and I walked out and I never went back to confession. So initially watching Silence, I was thinking as if you wouldn't just apostate straight away, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But then you, you start to unfold what that would mean for the Christian people that are, you know, that surround Andrew Garfield in Japan and how that would absolutely break their hearts and their faith. And so it becomes a much more complex complex mm. journey and mm. it's it's i think that's part of that uncomfortableness where you just go oh I, I would just do it straight away but of course i wouldn't you know i had a friend ask me if he could use some old picture of the virgin mary that i'd left at his house to do something with and i was like no absolutely <laughs> not you cannot cut that <laughs> you, yeah. you do not take that out of a frame so mm. it was um it was a really interesting journey to go on inwardly mm. i think mm. yeah Which also- it clearly was for scorsese i mean it's taken him so long to Decades, make it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting as well that he hung so long on that shot of Jesus wearing yeah. the crown of thorns at the beginning, and the, Im- the versions because there's so many to choose from, you know, right. and to choose that one and just hold it, you know, for quite a long time, and let you go. Okay, so you're looking at a representation or an image mm. of, of this, and that image of Jesus becomes so important later in the film when they're you know trying to drive Christianity out of the Japanese peasants. Yeah, I thought that also speaks quite a lot to him as well that he sees this particular version of Christianity. It's Something that seems to become you know, entwined in quite a lot of his characters, even unspoken, I'm sure, in a lot of the characters in Goodfellas, for example, mm. it pops up occasionally. And, yeah. it's not, and it's not a version that the Japanese people necessarily share, as Liam Neeson's character says at the end, you know, all these people mm. are dying for this idea of Christianity, which is very different to the idea you think that you're yeah, spreading, yeah. which I found very interesting. I also found interesting that he, Liam Neeson was supposed to be Portuguese, but he spoke in <laughs> Liam Neeson. I, you, look, you've just got to... No, I, mean, that- I actually disagree. One of my <laughs> one of my least favourite things in film and television is when people are from France and they speak with French accents. Because realistically, if you are hearing them translated, they would be speaking perfect English. So I actually think that that maybe was a stylistic kind of choice. Yeah, okay. Okay. So yeah. drivers like so like when you watch Xena and there are people from Rome and they're all speaking with Roman accents. Technically, if you were understanding them and you, you were bilingual, then you would be hearing. Mm. I mean, English. <laughs> this is a small bugbear of mine. <laughs> like when I see push-up bras in 60s movies, I get very angry. He's taken straight out of the picture. I thought Andrew Garfield's accent was pretty solid. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't mind it. Yeah, yeah it was consistent, yeah. unlike Drivers, which I, 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 a bit. Mm, I thought the sound design was beautiful. That was a really impressive part of the film for me, yeah. the, the lack of music and, mm. and the... Yeah that real natural soundscape was just so beautiful. And bookend, doesn't it end? With, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that blank screen. Yeah, totally. And all that. Mm. Yeah, definitely worthwhile. Yeah, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Cultural Capital, give it a thumbs up. <laughs>
How did you know the Redstone couldn't support orbital flight? That is classified information. It's top secret. Well, it's no secret why the Redstone tests keep failing. Numbers don't lie. And you figured all that out with this. Half the data's redacted. Well, what's there tells the story if you read between the lines. You did the math. Yes, sir. And how do you know about the Atlas rocket? That's not math. That data's not here like you said. It's classified. I held it up to the light. You held it up to the light? Yes, sir. Well, there it is. Mm -hmm. Atlas. What's your name? Catherine Goble. Are you a spy, Catherine? Am I what? I said, are you a Russian spy? No, sir. I'm not Russian. She's not Russian, sir. Okay, uh, now to Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures tells the story of, well, three hitherto hidden figures. A team of African-American women whose mathematical work was vital to the early success of NASA's American space program. Taraji P. Henson, Octavia Spencer, and Janelle Monet star as the three, quote, human computers, calculating the maths behind NASA's launch of John Glenn into orbit. Glenn would be the first American to orbit the Earth, but although his story is well known, the stories of Catherine, Mary, and Dorothy have been almost completely overlooked by popular culture. This is currently the highest grossing Best Picture nominee of the year. Clem, does Hidden Figures deserve the Oscar buzz it's receiving? I think it does. You know, there, there were ways in which I, I wanted it to be, to soar a little higher, but it's just such a compelling story. And um, I was also really excited by the amount of women that were behind the scenes on this film. It's a shame there wasn't a female director, and I know a few people have, have mentioned that, but um, it's just such a thrill to see smart black girls on screen and in particular, Taraji P. Henson's character is just um, just such a thrill. And I really loved that, you know. I couldn't think of the last time that, you know, a young black woman was able to portray that kind of character. I mean, I was sort of thinking maybe Rue in The Hunger Games, but then mm. we know what happened to her. <laughs> um, so, you know, to have this young girl at the beginning of the film in prologue grow up to be this woman who really was just such an extraordinary figure in the space race... Um, without any sort of terrible mishaps, <laughs> that's yeah. not a spoiler alert, um, was really just just fantastic. And Janelle Monae, I think, is a real revelation. Totally I mean, I've loved yeah. her music, but yeah. my God, she has such spunk. She's great. Yeah, cool. yeah in, in Moonlight as well. Yeah. Oh, she's great in Moonlight. Really, yeah. really powerful, yeah. Yeah, I love this film. I thought it was really, really, really good. I thought they were particularly strong in the, um, in the domestic drama scenes. Oh, I loved that. If I, in fact, I think... In a funny way, you could cut out the NASA stuff and still have... Yeah, the fantastic story, yeah. The, the, the scenes with Mahershala Ali and, and Taraji P. Henson getting together were just absolute heaven, to mm. the point where when they went back to NASA, I would oh, <laughs> I was kind of waiting for him to turn up again. I yeah. just thought they were so beautiful. Yeah, the whole screen I was in was in tears at that marriage proposal scene. <gasps> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah. melted. But I, I thought... Um, you know, it, it, it's sort of a similar issue that I think 42 had where you are trying to portray a world which is so beyond unwelcoming to these women and how do you do that without making those characters like Kevin Costner or, or Kristen Dunn's characters or um, a 
Jim Parsons um, characters, you know, I think I think some filmmakers, particularly white filmmakers, have struggled with that and kind of pull back from those characters because they don't, you know, they they kind of like Kristen Dunst's, Kirsten Dunst's character in that it's kind of benevolent racism. You know, at one point she says, you know, I don't have a problem with y'all, like, and, and um, Octavia Spencer says, I'm sure you believe that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's the case, you know, in Hollywood a lot mm. of the time. Yeah. So I think that they, they sort of did their best, but there were still a few too many scenes where Kevin Costner solved racism for me. Yeah. And I don't I know, know. Um, maybe that's true to life, in which case, great. Uh, but it is. it will be nice when we eventually get a film like this where that's not something they have to fall back on, mm. I think. Do you guys agree? Um, I certainly agree. Yeah, I th- yeah, definitely. I um, also saw that problem reflected in uh, in the music as well with Pharrell Williams. You know, yeah, the role as producer, so he wrote some songs for this for the film, and then it had that dirty dancing thing where they were trying to input, impose modern sounds, right, and modern variations of songs that may have may have existed in 1961. Well, and when you think about the great space films, like particularly Apollo 13, which is a really similar, you know, tonally um, in terms of having to deal with issues that can arise in space flight. <laughs> wow, I just made it sound so exciting. <laughs> but what, what, one of the things that makes that film so great, apart from the fact that it is a terrific film, is that, that brilliant soundtrack. And, and I found myself longing for that in Hidden Figures. And it was probably a budgetary thing. Mm. But, mm. you know, every now and again there would be uh, a period appropriate song and it really just everything kind of went up a notch um, and I mean I love Pharrell and I thought his songs were gorgeous yeah. but they just mm. I found myself every now and again going I wish we could just have a yeah. Shirelle song <laughs> yeah. now or yeah. something that was that, that says you know Space Race because it was such a particular time mm. and place yeah yeah Andy you said your audience responded oh big time yeah there was, a, there was a, like literally people standing up and clapping at the end of the film and even yeah. part way through the film after a couple of monologues people would be you know, oh yeah giving it there's one big monologue which uh, that combined with the marriage proposal scene and those scenes of, of their courtship I can't believe that she hasn't mm. had an Oscar nomination yeah I think that I don't really believe in snubs but that one Mm. I think really stings having seen the film. Oh uh, yeah, I think I know the one you're talking about, and that was the one that was took me out of the film a bit because mm. I was felt a bit Oscar clip, a bit Oscar clip, and a bit too unrealistic. Up until then, I felt the silence, the dealing with the oppression, the way that um, that the director you like introduced you know the the oppressive nature of the racism within NASA and within the culture at the time. You had know, the coloured zone. Mm. The way that they often it was almost like using a sight gag setup, but instead of it being funny, it's just like incredulity yeah. at this you know. Like the the, the um, coffee pot and all that sort of stuff, so it was really it was done in a really interesting way where you just get you get a real imp- um, idea of the industrial nature of the racism there, and yeah, like you were saying, there was a bit Kevin Costner's also racism <laughs> at times, um, but the, again, I think the performances were just carried it all through. I yeah. mean, even that the clip that I felt where she has this big hysterical outburst and you're like oh, totally on side, but at the same time you're like she, like she's risking her family's welfare, surely speaking out in this sort of way on her own, you know, she's put it's career suicide in a way. Yeah, initially I thought, oh, you know, clearly this is the big the big moment. But I think it worked for me. I um I didn't feel so much so much pulled out of it by the Oscar clippy nature of it, mm. and it, it is the season. But um, <laughs> but I thought, you know, her character was so tightly wound and put up with so much that it it made sense to me that she would just completely have that break. Mm, yeah. Um, and you know, in a way, I think win herself. Well, not even back. She, she, I don't think she had much power to begin with in that room, but, you know, to gain the respect of some of the people in there who that was mm. the kind of currency that they dealt in. Yeah, yeah. And I, thought, I, I definitely thought it was Jim Parsons' character who put the, put the coffee pot 
Yeah, for sure. In the tea room. No question, yeah. I thought there was some beautiful um, use of symbolism as well. The white chalk, the passing of a piece of chalk mm. was a recurring motif that... And then there was the pearls yeah. as well. So these, these little symbols that kind of re- like recurred throughout the film, I thought that was a really nice touch. And kind of shows that... that it, yeah, I mean, the story really didn't have to be directed as well as it was, I thought. Mm. There was a lot of art, really good artistry on display. Mm. I thought it really stood out. The one thing that really shot me, though, was the um, the look. It's a biopic, and it's Hollywood. Are we going to show you the real people at the credits thing? Oh, yeah, the same thing. Oh, they love that. In, in the Queen of Cutway, it's, yeah. it's in Spotlight, it's in Snowden, it's in Hacksaw Ridge. It was very Ridge, nice at the end of Lion, I thought. It's a Clint Eastwood movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's crazy. I don't know why they feel the need to do it. I wonder, I'm trying to think when it started, because I can't... Did they show you the real guys at the end of Apollo 13? I don't think they did. I feel like for a while it was just maybe some photos at the on the mm, credits yeah, that, yeah. that was that but now you're you're in real prologue kind of zone. <laughs> it's like they can't do it without it yeah. but do you think in like that this would be as good a film if it wasn't real yes i think so um and i think that there's stories that need to be told you know and that 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 is a problem with um representation and diversity in storytelling is that typically you know in this instance black women don't get to play those roles mm. or if they do they're often you know bad guy like amanda waller i mean she's a great she's one of the great bad dudes in in comic book history but um you know i think that that's what's so exciting about it is just this chance for you know smart black girls to have their time in the spotlight and if that means we get more fictional stories along those lines then mm. that's great and i i've you know spent the last two years railing against the tortured white male genius biopic model. So the, I think the success of this will hopefully mean that we might get a few more mm. female biopics and particularly women of colour. Yeah. Because there are so many great stories. You know, that's the thing. Like, you sit down you look at... You could come up with five or ten surefire stories that audiences... that would resonate with audiences. And yet they just don't... They don't happen and... I don't know. I don't think they even exist at script form. Like, I don't think it's a matter of these stories being written and then knocked down at an executive level. I just don't think there's that instinct there to write them. So I think that the the success of Hidden Figures is is really exciting in in terms of what it might bring mm. about. Because as we all know, the studios love to go, well, we'll have one of them. Yeah. So yeah. It, given that this has been an absolute blockbuster that nobody expected. I mean, it opened really mm. small in Indeed. the States. And it seemed to come from nowhere. There was no like pre, pre-hype about it. I think I saw a trailer in maybe September, October, and I was like, mm. why haven't I heard about this? Yeah, <laughs> I just thought from? that looks yeah. like a film we're not going to get in Australia. Like, right, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's been really exciting, and it's been exciting to see it roll out wide in the states and beat rogue one yes, i think that's right yeah which is it's really still cool. in the top five yeah, yeah. it's taken what nearly 200 million i think now just in the states thank um, god yeah the only thing i think that bugged me was the hermione effect where every time somebody is clever that you know that they're clever and you know they're not going to make a mistake there's no <laughs> any doubt that their yeah. calculation is going to be perfect every single time which i think is like it's a necessary side effect of having to speed through a story that took you know a few years mm. to actually play out in real life but that is always something that makes me feel like, well, they're almost not human in that way. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know a lot about her history. It's possible that that was just the case. Yeah. You yeah. know, that she mm. was just such a genius that it almost seemed implausible. But like you were saying, it's almost like that work itself wasn't the main focus of the film. It's just these wonderfully well-rounded characters and their domestic lives and the times happening around them. I thought it was the, the racism was done in an interesting way because there was no real physical violence. There was no use of the N-word. There was no mm. nothing that would offend you know a school group watching this or a family watching this in a way. I wonder if that makes it less realistic or... I don't know. Maybe mm. it was, I think, by that stage, perhaps a kind of genteel... You know, like like I said, like Kristen Dunn's character, that kind of yeah. benevolent, well, this is just the way things are and we all may mm. as well be happy about it, you know. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, he reminded me a bit of 42 and, and particularly Jim Parsons' character reminded me of Alan Tudyk's revolting baseballer in that film and I'm amazed he's had any work since then because his performance was so good yeah, at right. being so disgusting. So Well, he hasn't only got the voice work, I think. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was still looking at him, they just yeah. see that baseballer. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're giving thumbs up to Hidden Figures, which is out now in wide release. Anders, earlier this week you published an article on the University of Melbourne's news website, The Citizen, entitled, Is the Full-Time Critic a Dying Breed? Um, before too long, it had been picked up and passed around social media and republished in at least three different publications. So clearly this is a timely article. Could you please tell our readers who haven't read it um, what the article is about and why you wrote it? Yeah, so look, I was looking at the current state of film criticism in Australia in a mainstream media context. Um, I know it's something that freelancers sort of whisper to each other about constantly, this idea of um, how they're making money, how like pay rates are just dropping and, you know, the intense competition. And I thought, well, let's go and um, talk about it in a sort of more public, concerted fashion. So I interviewed a few few of like the, the old guard, I guess, um, and, and the more established critics and some of the sort of newer, younger freelancers. And in the course of writing the story, I sort of came to the conclusion that there are and no one's pulled me up on this figure yet um but please do if you're listening two full-time film critics left in australia uh one of whom is jason DeRosso at abcrn who's also producing his show and the other one is lee patch at the herald sun so then that gives you an idea of the numbers mm. did um, you have an estimation before you when you went in i really had no idea but you see i think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors around People, people think, oh, film critic, that's, that's this glamorous job. You watch movies every day, you know, blah, 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 blah. But you actually get down to it and you realise that a lot of the work you see in, you know, something like The Age, well, a lot of the work you see in The Age, uh, all of the reviews are by freelancers. Now, some of them have been writing for years. Some of them uh, have, you know, ongoing, you know, long-term relationships. But none of them are full-time staff writers. And it's the same case pretty much everywhere in every mainstream media organisation in Australia. Right. Um, were there any other surprises that you came across? Well, just the lack of money that people are making. I mean, it's shocking writing week in, week out for, for peanuts. And as, as Joanna DiMattia, uh, who I interviewed, who's a great freelance uh, film critic whose work I really admire, she said, there's so much emotional and physical energy that mm. you put into making very small sums of money. And it's sort of at a certain point you burn out on that, I guess. Or I can see why people would, because it's kind of like an escalator to nowhere, I guess. Like the very, if you're at the top of the game uh, in Australia, you're still just struggling to get by. Mm. Yeah. Has that been your experience in... Oh, I stopped publishing? reviewing films, yeah. There was just not enough money to justify, yeah, the, the level of kind of emotional energy that gets put into the pieces. And it sort of sounds counterproductive as a freelancer to say, well, I won't work for $100. But 
you know, that's time I could spend earning a whole week's worth of money somewhere else. And it's a real shame because I love writing film criticism, as you can probably tell from my ham-fisted response to silence. <laughs> I, I don't do it much anymore. <laughs> I've kind of become more of a film writer. And I think, you know, reading your piece, that seemed to have been the fate of a lot of former film critics who are now really just kind of general film dog's bodies. And that's, yeah. you know, there's still a lot to write about. There's plenty of news. And I think that that reflects the direction that the particularly digital media has gone in. It's often news about news about other articles that have already been written. So um, that's where I've found myself. Uh, I mean, I was really struck, Anders, by the almost total lack of women. I mean, that's that's the other thing, you know, the, the, the film criticism landscape in Australia, particularly the, of the tenured kind, is almost exclusively male. Yeah. I mean, Philippa yeah. Hawker was an amazing writer for The Age and she was made redundant. Um, and there's really not many regular writers left, I think. No, there's not. I mean, Sandra Hall at Fairfax, maybe. But even then, she's branching out into all sorts of other writing as well. The other thing I found really interesting is this idea, which I didn't really know, this idea that the precursors to Screen Australia, the Film Institute, um, all that kind of stuff, they would fund criticism and film culture programs hmm. in a way that Screen Australia does not to anywhere near the same degree. It's all sort of about creating film production jobs. That's sort of that, what they see as their sole focus. But it has not always been the case, and mm. I found that very interesting. I mean, we can argue about different types of criticism and who the different audiences are, but some, you know, longer-considered pieces may only ever find a niche audience, and that's never really historically that's not been a problem in Australia because of government funding and various things like that in a way that now I think is becoming more difficult or it's transforming mm. there's stop gaps and things but mm. um, in terms of mainstream arts coverage it's just yeah it's pretty it's pretty dire out there which I think has a flow-on effect because without a healthy film culture I mean how do I how do you know what movies you didn't know you wanted to see does that make sense? How do you how do you stumble onto you know how do you stumble onto films that you otherwise would never stumble onto you know if, if people aren't writing about them in in the media mm. news media? I think that the thing that makes me feel slightly less bleak is there was that period in the late nineties, early two thousands where theatre. I'm, I'm not a theatre critic, so I can't speak with much authority about it. But there was that period where everything was pushed with vox pops. You know that it was really good. Like I think mm, began with yeah. the you know walks out of work, and I'm sure a lot of people thought that the era of theatre criticism was well and truly over in terms of it being something that would encourage people to see or not see shows. So it could just be that we are in this kind of zeitgeisty realm at the moment where the the studios or the funding bodies genuinely think that people care what Joe Blow on Twitter says mm, yeah. about a film, and that hopefully that will. Like literally, joeblow.com. Oh. <laughs> yeah, as well as as well as John Citizen. Um, yeah, because that that to me is real oh, real dire when mm. when all the posters just covered in random tweets or Facebook comments. Yeah. I think that was yeah. something you pulled up in your yeah, article. Yeah. Bad like, Santa too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and you know. I mean, I can understand. I can understand if I was the distributor why I would, because you're not going to be getting great pull quotes from. Mm. But it it speaks to the increasingly marginal position I think mainstream critics face uh, of all kinds of forms. Jason Derosso is, I think, one of, if not the final full-time critic of any medium at the ABC, of any Gee. any um, type of, you know, books, music, he'd be one of a very tiny handful, if mm. it. So, you know, I think that says something about yeah. where we are at the moment. And, and the other thing I found interesting is that n 
absolutely nobody knows where it's going. So, mm. you know, it's, there's a feeling that the sky's fallen in and that you can't, I mean, you can't get any worse than where we are now. So in that sense, there's a bit of optimism, but nobody... Oh, we can Nobody get worse. Knows. They can make everyone write for free. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They've tried it. Maybe it's my lack of marketing now, though, but I just can't imagine that your ordinary person in the street would care what a Facebook comment says. I think to a certain extent people do believe critics and, yeah. you know, they don't care if it's bloodydisgusting.com or David Stratton. I think people do go, I know that that person's mm. job is to watch films all the time. I will take what they say seriously and, yeah. yeah and the thing is if you have a critic who has a long-standing platform you do as a reader develop a sort of relationship with them yeah mm-hmm. and you you know how to arbitrate culture according to the way they do it can be really hard i think you know particularly with the loss of margaret and david at the abc to rebuild that kind of a platform mm-hmm. would be just i mean yeah it's a formidable task um, I've heard rumours that they're trying, so, you know, good yeah, luck to them. Yeah, well, they, they tried to replace them at the SBS when they left with them. Um, yes. And it didn't yeah, go that no. well, I don't think, despite the talent that was on I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it was so much the people they chose as just the fact that it wasn't David and Margaret. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, yeah. they were individually, if you'd put any of those people on a panel show about film and, and packaged it as something different, I'm sure it would probably still be on TV. Mm. But the fact that people were just... We all love David and Margaret yeah, so much. You didn't want anybody <laughs> yeah. but them in that <laughs> format. Yeah. Except maybe Judith Lucy. I enjoyed it when she. Remember when they had yeah, those like yeah, celebrity yeah, villains? Yeah. That was great. I as a this is a random aside, but I really want to do the Margaret and David cruise. Yes, <laughs> me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be awesome. <laughs> so I'm glad they're still getting work. Yeah. That, has that already happened? I think it I happens, think it happens every, every year. year. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, and it's yeah. one of those like small boutique ships. <laughs> So presumably less gastroenteritis. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it's worse. Well, maybe, maybe yes, on maybe on the shit. boutique cruises that's where you really start shitting. <laughs> um, Sorry, so, David and Margaret, if you listen. <laughs> yes, no. no, we do look forward to reviewing the David Stratton documentary that's coming out. <laughs> yes, we it's, do. <laughs> have is you it seen called the, I peed on Fellini, or is it no, no? No, it's called David Stratton Mile A Life, Life in, in Cinema, cinema or yeah. something. Oh. Film. He, he wells up in the trailer. It's, and it's hard not to well up and watching the trailer. Does he complain about handheld film? <laughs> I'm sure he will. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, when I see a film with handheld cinematography, I think David Stratton would hate this. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's a hard, hard one to shake. Did he ever come around? He, I don't think no. he did. No, I don't think he's... No. God. Um, hopefully we can ask him if he's doing any promo interviews. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so earlier, and as you mentioned, uh, that often it's difficult to find people to tell you what films you should or shouldn't see. Yes. Yes. However, movie.com can. (laughs) Thank you. Good segue. Thank you. Yes. So we've partnered up with Movie to give you one month's free access to their uh, rotating playlist of 30 films a month. Just head to mubi.com slash cultural capital. My pick from the selection at the moment would be Heathers, the team pick classic, which I saw for the first time on Movie a couple of years ago and instantly fell in love with it. Great mm. acting, looks stunning, very, very... I wasn't expecting... I knew nothing about it. I wasn't expecting just how uh, dark oh, I can't be imagining in that situation. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty cool film. I, and I can't see a movie like that being made nowadays either. Mm, true. Really. Uh, but Although, did, they did try. Did they? Yeah. Oh, with, they, remake, they, re- they are remaking Oh, they're remaking it? As a TV show. Oh. And it's what is a theatre production as well. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah it's a musical. Take that yeah. back. Okay, cool. Mm, well, no, they tried... Because they, it kind of kicked off the Mean Girls Clueless... Um, yes. Like runner films in the late nineties, it was so brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I will be interested to see how they managed to remake that. Yeah. Cool. And what? Did, what would you recommend? Well, um, I, last night I watched the Ninth Configuration, 
Are you, are you familiar with this film? It's absolutely... It's so no. difficult to describe. So it's um, written and directed by William Peter Blatty, who's responsible for The Exorcist. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, but it was the film that he'd been working on. So he adapted it from his own book that he wrote before The Exorcist. He's actually a comedy writer, which is something mm. I never realised before. So um, this film is uh, set in a mentalist in- institute that's actually a Hungarian castle. Um, but <laughs> I love it, it already. <laughs> it's meant to be in the Pacific Northwest of America, but due to um, funding from PepsiCo, they demanded that he film it in Hungary because of some weird rule they had. So he managed to get $2 million from them, and he shot this film, which has no real stars in it. It has, some, it has three people who are all rejected for the role of Father Karras in The Exorcist. <laughs> And um, Robert Lugier as well. He turns up in blackface doing oh, an Al Jolson piece. Holy moly. So it, it's absolutely bananas. So all it, the whole premise is um, there is a, a psychiatrist. Um, everyone is from the army. So there's a psychiatrist who comes, who turns up, and he's, he tries to treat all these people who are suffering from various forms of PTSD. But they're all PTSD in this, I've lost my mind and I'm going to do Shakespeare with dogs sort of way. <laughs> so there's this total incredulity. That's like, absolutely what it was like when I had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's people with manifesting nervous breakdowns in these really, really like unbelievably comic way. So it's a, a bit like MASH in that way. It's a bit okay. like Cuckoo's Nest. But it's also like Aeroplane because the jokes come so fast. Wow. There's so many visual gags, sight gags, people walking around with dogs trying to get them to do King Lear and all this sort of stuff. It's nuts. But then halfway okay. through, um, you realise that the psychiatrist actually is another inmate. It's not really oh, a spoiler, it's like a premise. Okay. And so this is, there's actually somebody who's monitoring him and trying to get him through this therapy. And then it becomes this hugely profound, like this turns on a dime wow. and tone into becoming this hugely profound thing about um, the life, role of life and identity and morally, what's morally right and good and death and all this sort of stuff. And then it has the most amazing bar fight scene I've ever seen in cinema history involving these you know, Nazis in drag and beating up these, you know, because the whole premise is, sorry, is an astronaut who freaks out <laughs> while he's on the, on the launch pad and he has a mental breakdown and he, he goes into this, in, this asylum. So they're always trying to work out why he couldn't go to the moon and go wow. into space. So it's kind of it's, it's difficult to, display, to explain. And if you go online and read reviews, people are all like, I don't quite know what to make of this. But it divides people. <laughs> so it's either five stars or Oh, that's on my list. So it's absolutely brilliant. And it's on movie for another seven days and that is the ninth configuration. Leaning Leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a fellowship. What a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, safe and to wrap up we're going to look at our top three films about spirituality Clem, how do you feel about making lists? Are you a fan of... I love making lists. It's great. Yeah, I'm I'm very very pro-list. This is an interesting one to think about because I've seen a few Christian films um, for research purposes because they're almost almost exclusively terrible. 
But, you know, I tend to find my sort of spiritual um, and or Catholic themes in films that are not necessarily expressly mm. films about faith. So my top three probably looks a little odd. I'd say my top... Uh, well, that no, in no particular order. Um, <laughs> mine are Robert Zemeckis's Contact from 1997. Right. Um, oh. Which to me, I think, you know, there's that really interesting relationship between Jodie Foster's Ellie, the, the scientist, and uh, Matthew McConaughey as the, um, uh, well, he's a pastor, I think. I mean, he dropped out of seminary school, as he says to her when, he, when he's tuning her in the bar. Um, but they have this really interesting dynamic where he, she's constantly saying, but, you know, why do these, why does it have to be um, a Christian person who, who takes this seat in the spaceship, you know, and, and, and he'll say, well, let's, we want someone who represents, you know, this is a huge amount of people on Earth who believe in God, like, and it's this constant tension for her, and uh, at one point, she says something about, you know, well, can you prove that God exists? And he says, did you love your father? And she says, of course. And he says, prove it. And she's kind of stunned. But then it, it's it's really interesting, and I think the film's been out long enough that I can talk about the ending, is that she comes back to Earth, and I think she has this renewed understanding of, of what faith is because, in a way, that's kind of what she has to develop. And it's really interesting because Contact was originally a book written by Carl Sagan, mm, who is not, yeah. you know, a man of the cloth by any measure, but... Often if you say, oh, I'm Catholic or I, I believe in Jesus and God, people go, whoa, don't you believe in science? Like, it, it was an interesting film for me because obviously, yes, of course I do. And I think it's possible to do both. And mm. I think that that film sort of tries tries a bit of that. And, and there have been a lot of films that have come since which have sort of been working in similar realms. You know, Prometheus was one. Um, Gravity, I guess, Arrival. And, and it's still pretty hard to beat contact, I think. Mm. Um, cool. And it's, what's your number three? So my number three, this is interesting because I'm, I was raised in a completely agnostic uh, household, but I've become increasingly interested with faith Join on us. cinema. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's weird. Anyway, um, look, my number three is Salome by Carmelo Bene, a 1972 acid trip of a movie, which I saw at Myth last year or a couple of years ago. It's based on Oscar Wilde's play, which is itself based on uh, the adaptation of the Bible story of Salome, this like beautiful uh, woman. Um, it's kaleidoscopic, por- pornographic, violent, hilarious, and incredibly trippy. Some might even say possibly transcendent. Ooh. So it's really, I watched it late at night. It was like a perfect like just crazy all all out um assault on your senses it's got pretty much all of the text of the oscar Wilde play just shouted at you in italian from like all these crazy different angles it's all filmed in one uh like giant warehouse um with like fluoro coloring and you know there's like repeated images of this guy like struggling to crucify himself and people swimming around in like kaleidoscopic colors it's a real real trip but it's it's kind of awesome. Mm, so, yeah, dollar. totally recommend checking it out. Oh, wow, I've never heard of that. And who was the director? Uh, Carmelo Bene. That's wow. his name. Yes. Fantastic. Um, well, my number three is uh, very different to both of yours. It's mm. um, Orday, which is this Carl Dreyer film from 1955 oh. about a small Danish village. Um, and it kind of really crosses the line between spirituality and mental illness in a way that I find really, really interesting. So the premise is about this family called the Borgen family who live in a village in Denmark. Um, and the patriarch is named Morten, who's a devout Christian who's married to Inga. 
and their oldest son, Mikkel, is an atheist and he's really happily married. But the second son, Johannes, studied um, Kierkegaard so much that he now believes himself to be Jesus, like a reincarnation of Jesus. And he acts this way um, going around being really disappointed in people and disappointed in the family. And so, unfortunately, I think it's a problem with a lot of films about spirituality is that converted people tend to be really smug and condescending and annoying in a way that I thought was particularly notable in Risen. Um, which yes. is basically this Jesus as dude bro wandering around the desert just this really beatific smile on his face which made you want to slap him <laughs> which I'm sure wasn't the intention um, anyway um, Morton's youngest son um, Anders Ding is in love hey. yeah I know unusual he's in love with the daughter of a Christian minister who's a really really hardcore Christian and so this guy Peter won't let Anders marry his daughter unless he joins the very their church and so they argue and then um, Morton's wife goes into this really difficult labour and Peter says the baby's going to die because of a punishment because you guys won't convert to my really, really orthodox form of religion. And so then it becomes this whole questioning of faith and this, the way that fa- um, faith can have uh, this huge effect on the family. The really interesting thing in this film is most famous for its, um, for its cinematography and the way that Dreyer basically put this really, really realistic Danish farmhouse together and then took out uh, items one by one until you just had barely anything left, just enough to give you like an idea of where you were. Um, and this film has this amazing cl- um, closing sequence in which an eye opens and every everything kind of that you think you know is just changes. And so it's been described you know, by a lot of people, particularly Christians, as being one of the most Christian and powerfully religious films ever. And I won't spoil it, but it is. I thought it was really, really strong. I saw this at Acme a few years ago. They played it with in a drier season, and cool. it's yeah, I definitely recommend it. Well, my next one, because I am not ordering mine. If I was, I would probably put contact on, on the number one spot, is another film from 1997, um, written and directed by Robert Duvall and starring Robert Duvall, The Apostle. Mm, uh, yeah. And it's a film that, you know, I feel like not a lot of people saw. It did okay at the American box office, um, and he was nominated for Best Actor, but, jeez, uh, it's a good film. And he plays this very charismatic Pentecostal preacher who... Um, flips out and, and he, he beats up uh, his his wife's lover or his wife's new partner and puts him in a coma and later this guy dies so he just skips town and ditches his car, ditches his identity and, and turns up in this, this small town and introduces himself as the Apostle EF and um, it's really just this story about how he, you know, takes on this small town parish and creates this new life for himself and there's this constant tension of knowing that eventually... He'll be found out, and it really just has one of the best endings. Mm. One of my favourite endings. Um, just a really gorgeous film. I mean, I, I cool. it's actually been a while since I've seen it, and in, in doing putting together this top three, I thought I, I need to watch it again. But it's, I, I feel like it was probably some of Robert Duvall's best work. Mm. Yeah, it certainly seems like a personal film. Yeah, really. Mm. And great cast: Farrah Fawcett, Miranda Richardson, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, it's, wow. it's very, very good. Cool. cool. Anders? Uh, so my number two is Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter. <laughs> oh, one of my all-time favourite movies. Um, <laughs> Making his fifth appearance. <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, yeah, so you probably don't need to hear about this movie again. Um, it's But look, it's a beautiful and creepy fable-like film about two children fleeing a kind of violent priest who's sort of superbly embodied by Robert Mitchum. He's not kind of violent, he is. Um, he literally murders people. Um, uh, the photography, soundtrack, and the sets all sort of combine to create really sort of unsettling and lingering film. And if you haven't seen it, please go out and watch it. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's incredible, and it's available Everywhere. all over the place. Yes, yeah. on, even on Criterion. Um, my number two is The Wicker Man, which is a British horror film from 1973, which tells the story of a Christian police officer from the mainland. <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> Sorry to steal the SEO expression. Have you seen this film? I have, but it just makes me think of the the remake. Inc- the remake and then the incredible fake trailer for The Wicker Man as a romantic comedy with Mr. Big Stuff playing oh, on yes. the top. Oh, yes, yeah. He's discovered. <laughs> now he's going to have to return to the family business <laughs> he never wanted a part of. And then... They're walking on sunshine stuff. Sorry. Sorry. Whenever I hear the phrase Wicker Man, I just think of that trailer. This is my problem with this film is I've tried to introduce people to it and they just... <laughs> they just think of the... It's just yeah, the, the bees, do. the bees. Oh, this guy's there it is! I can't remember what I'm... No, the original film. It's a very good film. I'm sorry. Continue. Okay. I'm glad to hear that out of the way because it's... it's the, yeah, it's a plagues people. Anyway, so, so, um, so in 1973, a Christian police officer goes from the mainland to an island of the Scottish coast called Summer Isle to investigate the disappearance of a young girl. And this is a very devout Christian um, police officer played by Edward Woodward. And he soon discovers that the island is in thought of a Celtic form of paganism and the islanders insist that the girl never existed. So he starts trying to solve the mystery that, and then he realises something very, very strange. And Lord Summer Isle, played by Christopher Lee, um, is an agronomist who believes in human sacrifice. So this, um, even though it's well known as a horror film, I think this is really explores pre-Christian spirituality and paganism in a kind of respectful yet really weird way. So it kind of explores like fertility rituals and all these sorts of things that outrage Sergeant Howie, who is Edward Woodward's um, Christian police officer. But it also gives you this idea of a really functional um, community that is bonded together by uh, by, um, by paganism in a way that I think nobody else has ever really managed to do. And it is difficult to get past the um, remake and the ridiculed... And the, even the pe- people I've tried to watch this 1973 version with just find the folk music far too twee and annoying and um, and the idea that you know, that a horror movie can happen in, in broad daylight. You know, it doesn't really seem to... Seems to find a lot of barriers, I think, to modern sensibilities. But it just keeps getting voted one of the scariest films of all time, and um, British horror movies buffs still um, treat it as like the Citizen Kane, literally the Citizen Kane of horror movies in some cases, they'll say. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I think um, nature worshipping should get a looking on this list, and that's one of the best versions I've seen. <laughs> cool. Um, well, my next one is is a bit of a... Well, no, it's not a joke. I, I, I One of the things I'm interested in is that there has never been a really good adaptation of the, anything from the Bible mm, and yeah. um, there, are some, there are some great it is the greatest story ever told but there are some great stories in there that are you know it's surprising to me that nobody's ever gone there and, and uh, Noah was interesting mm. you know and uh, I think the first half of, and that's not my film I just wanted to mention that I think the first half of that film was really interesting and it, it was a sort of strange kind of 80s fantasy film with those great stop motion rock monsters yeah. and then it just went to hell but um no, my top is um, Robocop, is Paul Bowen's <laughs> Robocop wow. from 1987, which is famously um, a Christ allegory. And now Paul Verhoeven has, for a long time, I think he wrote, uh, but has wanted to make a film, you know, a very sort of quotidian film about Jesus. But, you know, he's he's been very vocal about the fact that that was his American Jesus story. And I, I've got mm. the quote here. I'm not going to try and do his accent, but he says... <laughs> um, <laughs> We was this was when he was talking about the remake and that the digital world uh, was would, I'm not sure that would improve the soul of the movie you know the point of Robocop of course is it's a Christ story it is about a guy who gets crucified in the first 50 minutes and then is resurrected in the next 50 minutes and then is like super cop of the world but is also a Jesus figure as he walks over water at the end <laughs> <laughs> walking over water was in the steel factory in Pittsburgh and there was water there and I just put something underneath the water so he could walk over the water and say that wonderful line I am not arresting you anymore meaning I'm going to shoot you. And that is, of course, the American Jesus. 
<laughs> so that's my number one. But it is like it's a great. It is a great Christ allegory, and it's um it's one that I think of whenever I think about when are they going to make a good Bible movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> Fantastic. So there you go. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, uh, so, okay, so my number one is a film that I only saw last year, but I really, really loved it. It's called Le Fil de Joseph um, by Eugene Green. Uh, I saw it as a myth. Um, it's sort of like a tragic comic adaptation of nativity story, but set among the Parisian literati. <laughs> so it's like you've got Mathieu Almeric is so funny. It's like this crazy uh, egomaniac um, uh, French publisher. And look, Green uses this very highly formal visual blocking. So characters are looking dead on at the camera. It's all very symmetrical and it's quite awkward and stilted in a very deliberate way. And I ended up falling really, really hard for this movie. And there's a beautiful scene uh, where the main character, this teenage boy and this older sort of father figure stand in a church listening to sort of early modern music. And for one brief moment, I understood the power of religion. It's beautiful. Oh, there you go. So I, I totally recommend checking it out. It's great. God. Yeah, yeah, I do remember you reviewing that I think on our Myth episode and yeah, you're a big yeah, fan of that yeah, yeah it sounds like a fascinating film um, my number one is um, I'm staying in Scotland uh, for Breaking the Waves um, last one mm. Tuesday 1996 oh, cool. film um, and I think this one is more than any other or anything else that's been made in recent decades kind of really explores the toll of faith and martyrdom which is something that definitely gets explored in silence but here um, it's kind of focused just on just uh, two people, a newly married couple, Jan, who's an atheist oil rig worker, and his devoutly Catholic bride, Bess, who's played by Emily Watson. Bess lives in a, a Scottish town that's so Calvinist that the, the church isn't allowed to have any bells and women aren't allowed to speak during services. And right from the beginning, Bess kind of sees sex as this sort of joyous miracle that she can share with Jan. So when he's away at the oil rig and he, she prays for his return he's, and he's paralysed in a workplace accident, she feels like she's responsible. And he goes, he becomes hospital, bedbound in hospital and, and starts suffering from depression and asks her to go and start sleeping with other men to, and describe her, uh, her encounters. Which at first she refuses to do and then through she has a lot of conversations with God in the church by herself in which she does the voice of God in a sort of a guttural masculine voice and speaks in a high-pitched voice for herself in this sort of child-teacher kind of role. And so she begins to see what he wants her to do to go and, and have sex with these strangers as being this sort of expression of devotion and a necessary sacrifice. And so all around her, of course, the, the town you know, hate her and reject her and the, the, um, the church ostracise her. Von Trier, of course, puts her, like he does with almost all of his major female characters since this film, puts them all through these various versions of hell and to try and test their love and to show it through um, being cruelty, I suppose, through acts of cruelty. So um, Emily Watson's performance is incredible in this. I think it's one of the best performances in decades. She's totally uninhibited and Bess is kind of like this creature that's just been reborn through this, these horrific experiences of her own. And so even if you're not a fan of Von Trier, this is kind of like one of his best what points. It's kind of in between before he got really dogma and before he started just exploring sex, you know, <laughs> seeing that as his main driver. Yeah, so I thought that was really, really good and worth seeing. Cool. Nice one. Thanks. Um, did you have any films that nearly made the list? Oh. I was thinking um, of Babette's Feast was also really, really good. Um, and The Passion of Joan of Arc. Yes, yes, yes. Um, for, in similar to your Salome, I was thinking of Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain as well as being this, um, this kind of hallucinogenic, crazy mm. exploration of death and spirituality. Oh, my all-time favourite review um, segment. I can't remember who wrote it, but they just described... They were sort of going through each of the story threads and, and of the future one they said. And in that one, um, Hugh Jackman's Lotus Man meditates in the general direction of the oneness of it all. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a beautiful expression. Isn't it great? Yes. 
No, so they were the ones that really sprang immediately to mind. And I'm sure as soon as you turn the recorder off and we walk out of the room, I'll think of a lot of other ones. But they're the kind of the ones mm. I return to, I think. Yeah, okay. Oh, Whistle Down the Wind is, oh, is, cool. is pretty beautiful. That, yeah. that, that came close. Yeah, that's a beautiful film. Um, which apparently is now a musical? What the hell? Yeah, I think Lloyd oh, Webber's gotten all over it. I'm not sure how that works. But, uh, yeah, yeah, gentle Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Whistle Down the Wind? No. So these two kids, Hayley Mills, and wow. I can't remember who the boy is, but yeah. they this this vagrant criminal turns up in their shed and they think he's Jesus. Um, and so it's just this beautiful film. Mm. Yes. They Blakey, they call him at the end when the cops turn up, right, Blakey. <laughs> so in our family, any bad dudes henceforth would call Blakey's. Blakey's. <laughs> so be careful at Coles, there's lots of Blakey's outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a gorgeous film. Yeah. Um, I also thought 2001, you could argue, yeah. is a great film and a great mm-hmm. film. Yeah, totally. Cool. Thank you very much for making it to the end of Cultural Capital. We'll be back in two weeks with our regular host, Eloise Ross, who will be back from the US. Anders, can uh, people find you on the internet or are you still... <laughs> no, they can find me on the internet. <laughs> I'm Anders Furs on Twitter. Clem, are you, where would, can people find you online? I still have a Facebook page. Uh, so it's facebook.com slash Clem Basto, where I post my increasingly small amount of work. Um, and I'm also on Instagram at Clam Bistro. Brilliant. And I'm at Andy Ricky on Twitter. Thank you very much.